Good to have you here this morning. If, if you would like to borrow a Bible, would you raise your hand really high and the ushers will bring you one. You can follow along with where we're going this morning through the Word of God. If you didn't bring one, just raise your hand when you're done with it. You can leave it in the pew behind. I'm wondering if, <clears throat> it may seem like a random question, but if, if you've been baptized, if you're a believer, have you been baptized? Uh, maybe some of you just got converted, just came to Jesus. Maybe you just came to Jesus this summer and you're kind of like wondering, what's this life all about? But one of the things that you do uh, when you're converted is you get baptized. It's a demonstration that uh, your sins have been washed away, you've been raised to newness of life. So if you just got converted, we're doing a baptism next week in the lake. We're not messing around. We're going in the lake. A little cold, it's all right. It's good for you. You're sinful. Get it all out. Yeah. <laughs> And if maybe you're a believer and you have not, you know, maybe it's been years and since you become a believer and you never got baptized, it's time to get baptized. I got baptized in seminary. I mean, I got saved at 19 in college and then I was in seminary and I'm like, man, I am not baptized. And I was, I was kind of embarrassed about it. It's like, oh, I don't want to tell anybody. I, mean, I don't want to do this. But like, no, get baptized. It's, it's, a, it's an easy command to obey. It's in the Word of God. And so if you want to get baptized... Come see me. Come see the associate pastor, John Bechtel. We'll get you set up next Sunday after the service. We are going to have baptism in the lake. It's going to be great. All right. I know a lot of you are new. What we do here on Sunday morning is we study. And if you like to take notes, I know you take them all week in your class. But take them some more if you want to. But we're going to do some studying of God's Word. And we go through books of the Bible one at a time. And right now we're in the book of Malachi. Just starting it. So turn to the book of Malachi if you have a Bible. And if you have no clue where it's at, that's okay. Most don't. Look for the book of Matthew and then go backwards. It's the last book in the Old Testament. If you can't find it, look in your table of contents. And if you still can't find it, ask the person next to you to find it for you. It's in there. It's really small. Malachi. Let's all stand up so I read the Word of God. Let's stand. Malachi chapter 1. We're just going to go through verse 5. The oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You may be seated. If you notice the start of the book, it says, The Oracle of the Word of the Lord. Another way to translate the word oracle is to understand it as the word burden. The burden of the Word of the Lord. 
to Israel by Malachi. Isn't that interesting? Like, why would the word of the Lord to Israel be considered a burden to Malachi? Maybe you've, you've had a burden for someone at one time in your life where you, you really care about them, they're doing something that's pretty destructive, and you want to speak the truth to them, but you're not quite sure how they're going to receive it, and so it, it's like a burden that you have. Uh, think about if you've ever known someone who's in a, a, a bad dating relationship. Not you, of course. Not you at all. But someone you know, right? It's in a bad dating relationship. And you want to speak the truth to them because they're, they're like, this is destructive. And, and you want to go speak the truth, but you're not quite sure how they're going to receive it, how they're going to respond. So you're carrying this burden as you're trying to speak truth. That's the way Malachi carries this burden from the Lord to the Israelites. It's the truth of God. It's heavy upon him. He's going to proclaim it to them, but he's not quite sure how the Israelites are going to respond because the Israelites have a history of rebellion. And during the time when Malachi is, is writing is just after they've been brought back into the land. Because you know where they were? They were in Babylon. And they were in Babylon for their rebellion and waywardness from God. He took them into Babylon and he's brought them back to their land. Their, their land is, is now devastated. And so they come back to this land of Israel. They're starting to rebuild Maybe a little bit of their walls. They're rebuilding the temple again. They have some other prophets spurring them on, pumping them up. Come on, let's keep going. The glory of the Lord is going to dwell among us. And, and they, they come back to the land with passion, excitement, and zeal. But then nothing's happening. They, they look around. They're like, man, these are not the glory days. Things aren't going so well. We got invaders occupying us and we have drought things are not going well at all and so their initial passion switches and it turns to apathy spiritual apathy and that's where Malachi comes in Malachi is sent on a mission from God with this heavy burden to proclaim the truth of the word of the Lord to the Israelites to wake them up from their spiritual stupor. He's trying to wake them up to get them to start following the Lord again, to turn from their, their wicked ways and to follow the Lord again. And one of the main messages of Malachi is, is this. Return to me and I will return to you. It's like repent. Return to the Lord and he will return to you. And you'll hear that common coming up over and over and over again. And the way that this wake-up call is expressed is in a series of six disputations, six arguments that the Lord lays out of charges against his people. And during these six disputations, the people will bring up a counter to God. They're like a little, little kid when their parents tell them to do something. And they're like, why? Why? No, I didn't do anything wrong. They're challenging their parents. And then the Lord will say, you need to do this, and you're at fault, and you're wrong. And what the Lord's trying to do is he's trying to get them to repent. And so the first disputation is verses 2 through 5. And I'm going to call this disputation 
the doubting of God's love. They're doubting God's love. God expresses his love to the people. They doubt it. And then he elaborates on why and how he has loved them. And you know what? It's a great place to start. Don't you think? It's a great place to start a book out with the love of God. Because if you realize that God loves you, it could be a good motivation for a return to him. Because maybe some of you have strayed. Maybe some of you are running from God right now. Maybe some of you feel distant from God right now. And he's got these open arms that say, return to me and I'll return to you. His love is to be a motivation for your return. But as Malachi carries a burden, this morning I come with a burden also. I'm supposed to proclaim to you the word of the Lord but it's a burden for me because I'm afraid that some of you will hear it and not respond. And I know some of you right now where the word really has to do with you and you think it has to do with someone else. You're the one running. You're the one distant. You're the one who has drifted away from God and I carry a burden because this morning you won't think it's you. You're deceived. Just like the Israelites. They're like, who, us? What are you talking about, God? And I would hate it if you walk out of here today thinking, it's not me. And that's why I carry this burden of the word of the Lord to you who are drifting, who are wayward. This is for you. God's had these wide open arms return to me and I'll return to you. Let's jump in. Let's start with verse number two. God says, here he says, I love you. I have loved you, says the Lord. So he has a history of loving the Israelites. He's loved them. He, he's continued to love them. He, he, if you're a believer, you know what this feels like, right? The Lord has loved you through the gospel of Jesus, but he doesn't just love you as an individual. He also loves us collectively, and that's what he's speaking of here. He's talking about his collective love for his people, the Israelites. God has a history of loving his people, all right? They don't buy it. Look what they say in verse 2. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, God? We don't see it. Give us some specifics. We want to show us. You say you love us, but we don't see it. We look around and look at this mess. How have you loved us? Yes, we are back in the land, but it's just a, a piece of junk that's been destroyed. Yeah, we're back in the land. We rebuilt the temple, but man, it looks nothing like the previous temple looked. And the glory of God does not dwell here. And here's the Israelites. They have all these promises of old about God blessing the nations through them. And, and what have they known? All they have known is occupation. By the, first, it was the, the Babylonians. And then it was the Persians after that. But way before that, it was the, it was the Assyrians battling them, tormenting them. And right now, they have no army. 
there's a drought, the crops are failing, and there seems to be no manifestation of God's presence. And the people are like, okay, we hear that you say that you love us, but we don't see it. How have you loved us? You ever said that? How? Show it. But the interesting thing here is that it's not God's fault for the mess that they are in. It was their rebellion in the first place that got them deported to Babylon. And it's their rebellion right now during Malachi's time that is withholding the blessings from God. And it's their rebellion that Malachi is going to keep hitting on six times throughout the book. He's going to say, look, you priests and you people are corrupting worship. You're not bringing honor to God. And then he's going to move on and say, you men are divorcing your wives for out reasons, except you've lost affection for them. He said, and some of you other men are marrying pagan women. And they said to keep going on. He said, say, this land is corrupted with sorcery. It's corrupted with adultery. It's corrupted by people oppressing the hired worker. They're oppressing the alien. The alien. They're thrusting the alien inside. They're, thr- they're oppressing the widow. They're oppressing the fatherless. And not only that, this is a, a, a nation that is withholding their tithe from the Lord. They're supposed to bring their contribution. They're holding it back. And through it all, they're saying the Lord is not righteous. He lets evil just flourish. The Lord is not righteous. So throughout all of this, this rebellious people are experiencing the consequences for their sin and they have the gall to say to God, how have you loved us? Really? Seriously? You're doing that? Are you kidding me? It's your fault, and you're blaming God. Oh, you know, I I can understand the Israelites (laughs) because I do that. Where my mess is all on me, and I'm like, I'm looking for somewhere else to pin it. Sometimes it's on God. Sometimes it's on other people. Sometimes it's on circumstances. And if you're like that, you are a person that is always looking for something external to blame for your miserable life. You're looking for something outside of you to blame for the misery that you're experiencing. You're looking all around except for right in here. It's you. Have you ever considered that? It may be you. Your, your life, that you are experiencing this, this misery in your life, maybe there could be some external influences, but on a whole, it's on you. I was reading about this guy this week. His name's Bill. Bill's 36 years old. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you the situation. I do not know him, so don't think that when we do counseling, I'm going to ex- explain uh, all your counseling problems to the whole congregation. This is another guy. Bill doesn't even go here. He's a Christian man. And he is experiencing, came in, I guess came into counseling because he is experiencing the remoteness of God. God seems far away from him, distant. Anybody tracking with that? God seems kind of away from him. And the way Bill consistently throughout his Christian life has explained the remoteness of God is that he has blamed his father, his dad. He said, my dad, you know, he was, he was remote from me. My father was distant from me. And since I have this, this 
unhealthy relationship with my father. I project that upon my heavenly father, and I feel distant from him. And, 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 and a lot of you have really experienced that. You, you have this remote parent, your father, and you say, that's the way I feel about God. And that's, you, that's a feeling you have. And so as he was working through this stuff about his remoteness with God and his pinning it on his father all the time, his earthly father, he started to realize as he started to study the scriptures that God is not remote but loving. God is merciful. And God is, is near through Jesus, right? And it, when Bill started to get honest with his life, he said to himself, you know what? There are some times in my Christian life where I feel really close to God. And as he's still working this stuff out, he said, you know what? It's not always accurate for me to pin my remoteness from God on my earthly father. And as he started to examine his life more, he started to realize that his remoteness from his heavenly father, his distance from his heavenly father, had to do with ongoing personal sin in his own life. For many years, he had these unchecked sexual fantasies. For many years, he would manipulate people. He had this ongoing love for money. And he confessed that he was extremely a lazy man. And what he had done his whole Christian life, he would go around and say, I don't feel close to God right now. And the reason I don't feel close to God is because I didn't feel close to my, my earthly father. And he would just already always excuse it. But when he learned that his heavenly father is not remote, then he had to deal with some other issues. And those other issues were pointing the finger at himself. The problem is not out here, Israel. That's what they're doing. The problem is in here. It's not external. It's internal. And I know that you've had a lot of stuff happen to you in your life. And I know there's a lot of things that have happened in your life that you can't control that have made you quite miserable. But there's a lot that you can control. And a lot of the blame is on you. And so the first step of walking closely with the Lord is to say, all right, whatever is mine, I am going to own it. I'm going to own it. Yeah, that's mine. This is mine. This is my sin. I will own it. And you know what the amazing thing about God is? This is so amazing about God. So I love this book. God completely knows the waywardness of the Israelites. And in the midst of it, he says this. I have loved you. Throughout your rebellion, I have continually loved you. That's grace. Can you imagine God saying that to you right now? I have loved you. I didn't stop loving you. I saw you run away. I saw you go after that. And after that, I didn't stop loving you. I still love you. Come back to me. Return to me. That is grace. And that is our God. But it doesn't stop. He continues to explain his grace and his love for them in a way that is quite unexpected. Now, if you like to take notes, you might want to take notes now. And, but trust me, this will be a further study for many of you and a good study. God is about to explain that he loves them because he chose them. Stick with me. Go back to verse 2. He says, Is not Esau 
Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Okay, so he's taking him back to this famous birth of these twins to Rebekah and Isaac named Esau and Jacob. So he's, he's, he's bringing these two twins up in order to uh, compare and contrast his dealings with each. Now you're going to love this verse. All right, here we go. End of two, coming into three. Yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. What does that mean? I love Jacob, hated Esau. The language here is not in an absolute sense. It's more, if you look at the context, it's in the sense of choosing. I've set my choice upon Jacob, and I did not choose Esau. And the choice has to do with Jacob and his descendants have been chosen to carry the blessing to the nations that would ultimately come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and Esau was not chosen. I mean, does that mean that every single descendant, every single Israelite forever was saved? No, no, no. Does it mean every single Edomite, the descendants of Esau, was condemned? No, they could repent and come into the God of Israel, of Jacob. But it's talking here about nations. It comes from this individual, Jacob, chosen. Esau was not chosen from them, come descendants. Now, why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? I mean, did you, did you, look, at, did you look at Jacob and go, man... Jacob is so much better than Esau. I know that when Jacob starts to live his life, he's going to walk with me with integrity and uprightness so much better than Esau, right? Is that why I chose him? No. If you read the Bible and you read about Jacob's life, he was an absolute mess. He was a deceiver of deceivers. So he didn't choose Jacob because he was going to somehow be better than uh, Esau and his actions. Well, maybe God chose Jacob and not Esau because of the birth order. Nope, that one doesn't work either because uh, Esau was born first, and so he should have got chosen, but no, Jacob was chosen. And so you want to ask the question, why would the God choose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau? Why, why, why? And, and the answer is, it's his choice. He's God. He chose Jacob by grace. He, did, he just made the decision. It was his decision. It is not a choice, not based upon what one would do, wouldn't do. He chose Jacob, his sovereign choice of grace. So the question is, how has God shown his love toward his people? Because that's the question Israel is asking. And God is saying, I chose you. I picked you. It was my choice. I picked you. Now, just to be a, a good pastor and shepherd to you, I just cannot leave this hanging. I mean, I've got to take it a little bit to the New Testament, not just talking about nations, but to hone it in a little bit on um, individuals and God's sovereign choice in salvation of individuals. I guarantee you, if you've never heard this before, I hope this will not make you run out yelling, but make you say, hold on, let's study, let's think, let's hone in, let me work out this, this, this truth from God's Word. What is God's word saying? And so the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, I'll put it on the screen, in Romans 9, he brings God's uh, sovereign choice into the salvation of individuals. Romans 9. I'm not going to read the whole passage there. It says, it says, Though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And then he quotes Malachi, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now you can read the context more and more in Romans 9 some other time in, in, for further study, but if you want to ask the question, how has God shown his love to you as a believer? God's striking argument from Malachi is this. I chose you. He did not pick you because he saw that you were going to live this great, good life. God did not pick you because he looked into the future and he saw that you would exhibit faith. That's not why he picked you. And so you may think to yourself, well, why did God pick me? It's a sovereign choice. This is a choice of grace, of love. He picked you because he wanted you, because he desired you, because he loved you. It's not because you were something superstar awesome. No. You were the opposite. You were running away from him. You were screaming. You were yelling. You did everything possible to hate him. And he says, yeah, I'm going to pick that one. He picked you by grace. And I know there's a lot you need to work out here. I know there's a lot you need to think through in God's election, predestination, sovereign choice. How does that all fit in? And, and, and you, you should do that. You should do that. Don't just trust everything I'm saying. Get into the Word. Study Romans 9. Study some other passages. Does the Bible really teach God's sovereign choice of electing grace? I think that it does. But when you start studying, do not ever cease to be amazed by the fact that God saved you by grace. You can turn this into an intellectual study where you can go and debate with the, all the people in the world on this issue and you can get online and you can spend hours and screaming and yelling at people, but do not ever cease to be amazed by God's sovereign choice of you. It's like you were out on a boat that went down in the ocean in the, middle of the, uh, middle, in the middle of the ocean. It's dark at night. You are doomed. You're going down, but somehow rescued. Be amazed. You're in a building that's burning. It's about to crash in on you. It's all over with. There's no way of being saved. Rescued. It's like the blind man who was healed by Jesus. And the authorities are saying, explain to us what has happened to you. And he's like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. Don't ever cease to be amazed by God's sovereign choice of grace. And God is pressing this home to the Israelites because, look, there was nothing special about them when he picked them, and there's nothing special about them right now so they can return to him by grace. Don't have to fix yourself. Don't have to clean yourself up. You can come right back to God, return to him in repentance and faith by grace. It's all about grace. So the gospel is all about through Jesus. It's grace. God's not done. Still speaking the truth here in Malachi, all right? He moves from this individual election of Jacob and Esau, and now he focuses on their descendants. Watch what he says. Verse 3 again. But Esau, I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country, 
and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. All right, so we have the Israelites from Jacob, the Edomites from Esau. And just, just for the record, these two hated each other. They're classic enemies. And, and you know, the, the prophets denounced the Edomites more than any other enemy of Israel. In fact, when they start talking about the enemies of Israel, they'll use this general term and just kind of classify them all as Edom. It's like the Chicago Bears. Their classic enemy is the Packers. And so if you start talking about the enemies of the Bears, you may just kind of lump all the teams and call them Packers. They're all Packers. They're the hated. And that's kind of how Israel's prophets would lump all the enemies together sometime and just call them all Edom. So there's this animosity. There's this, there's this hatred against the two. And then... My friends, you really have to, to, to really struggle with the Word of God. And so the question that we come to, and, I, and I'm going to take a few minutes to answer it because it's so good, it's, it's the question is, so God is going to bring this complete and utter judgment upon the Edomites. He's just totally going to wipe out the nation. And the question is, how does that show love to the Israelites? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I am going to do some serious destruction here. I love you. You're like, what? What? Don't just read the Bible and go, that's okay. That's what it, you struggle with it. I love you. And so I'm going to go wipe out this nation. Struggle with that. Why? That, at first it should bother you, right? Like, that bothers me. Express it. It's okay. But then think through it. Study it. Why does he say that? I love you. Watch me wipe them out. Why does he say that? This is good. Don't tune out here. This is so good. This is so good. Stick with me here. 200 years earlier, a similar prophecy, almost word for word to this verse here, was spoken to another nation. Can you guess what nation that was? Guess. That's right. I didn't hear it. But I guess. <laughs> he said the same thing to Israel. He did. He said the same thing to his own people that he says here to, to Edom. And I'm going to put that verse up on here. 200 years earlier, this is what he said to his people. Right? Jeremiah, yep, yeah, 9-11. It's so similar. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins a lair of jackals. And I'll make the cities of Jerusalem a desolation without inhabitant. Oh, he said the same thing to his people. Because they were just as rebellious as Edom. And so what did he end up doing? He disciplined them. He destroyed their lands. And you know what the Israelites did? They, they kind of held out. They wanted to fight against the Babylonians a little extra. And so the Babylonians came down and just crushed them crushed them and, and took them into exile. And you think, well, if God loves his people, then why does he crush them like that? What's well, his discipline? He, it's, a, it's an act of love for them and a sense of disciplining love on them. So now the issue is, so they were crushed, taken in exile, and Edom, God says, Edom is going to be crushed also. But they are never going to recover. The nation is going to be wiped out completely. 
You see, when Babylonians came in and they crushed Jerusalem, they took the, the uh, Israelites off to the land of Babylon, but Edom stayed in their land because they kind of worked with the Babylonians to crush Israel. And so they're stuck in their land. And they're like, ha, 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 we're going to steal your stuff. Have fun in Babylon. And so they stayed in their own land. But over the years, these uh, Nabataean Arabs came in. These Nabataean Arabs started pushing them out of their land, pushing Edom out of their land, pushing them out of their land, and they brought their herds in, and their herds started just stomping on the land. And then you have these scavengers called jackals all over the land, laying waste to the land. And so the Edomites are kind of getting pushed out, and during Malachi's time, they're looking at their land as they're leaving their land into destruction. And you know what they say? They say, okay, we're messed up now, but we're going to go back and fix our land. Did you see that in verse 4? No, no, verse 4. Yeah, look at it. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. <laughs> they understand their, their, their demise, but they hope to go back and build one day. Look what the Lord says in verse 4. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So in their wickedness, they were judged, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And so Edom's destruction was permanent and irreversible. Now look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So it's going to take a few generations for the complete demise of the Edomites as a nation, and the, the Israelites are going to eventually witness it as a nation, and it will result in praising them because they have a God who is not just connect it to their territory, but their God reaches out into other nations, and their God raises up nations, and their God pushes down nations, and their dis God's destruction upon the Edomites was an expression of his love for his people. How? How? How was the destruction of the Edomites an expression of God's love for his people? And here is the great answer. They were just as deserving, but God spared them by grace. They deserved to be crushed just as much as the Edomites for their wickedness and their waywardness, but God spared them by his sovereign choice of grace. And it's not because the Israelites would somehow look better in the future or act better in the future, it all comes down to God's unchanging character. As he says in Malachi 3, 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Because God does not change, the Israelites are not destroyed. doesn't mean that every Israelite is saved within the nation because a lot of them are wayward, falling away. But on the nation as a whole, the God maintained his covenant love with the nation because he's going to use Israel to bless the nations and one day send his son, Jesus Christ, through the line of Jacob to bring salvation to all those who repent and believe. And what I see here is an act of grace. God allowed Israel to remain while they were worthy of destruction. And to me, when I'm looking at what God's doing with the nations here, I see hope. I see hope for every single person in here who has made a mess of your life. You may not be a nation, but you've left a pretty good trail of destruction. 
This is a word of hope that the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ is, is coming to people just like you because you are worthy of destruction. Don't get mad at me telling you this, but you're worthy of destruction. Every single person in here is worthy of destruction because of our sin, but grace says that God's arms are open wide. He sent his Messiah, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for us who are worthy of destruction. He was destroyed in death. He was buried. He raised again. And his arms are open wide right now and say, all who want to repent and believe in me will be accepted. That's grace. Straight up grace is what it is. And if you're sitting there wrestling with yourself and going, yeah, but did God choose me? Did he not choose me? I don't know. Did he choose me? Did he not choose me? And you need to know this. The gospel is thrown out to all. It's thrown out to every single person in here. The offer of free grace is to all. The sacrifice of Jesus is thrown out to all. And so I can look at you and say, if you want to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, to be with the Father forever, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, the offer of the gospel is to you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But for you wayward believers, for those of you who are running, for those of you who feel so far away from God right now, I feel like I can say this from the Word of God. God loves you. He has a history of loving you. He has loved you in your waywardness. He has loved you when you ran away from him. And he's calling out to you right now with his love to return. You, you don't have to fix yourself because you didn't fix yourself in the first place for him to love you initially. And you, I know you have a big mess. We'll help you clean it up. But the word of the Lord to you is, I love you. Return to me and you'll be forgiven. Return to me. Return to my grace. And I just want to say, it's a burden to me to think that some of you would leave here today by God telling you that he loves you he sees you running and he still loves you. It would be a great burden for me today for you to leave and keep running. But it's easy to do. Last night, I went to a concert of my, one of my favorite uh, artists in the Christian realm. My family uh, loves to listen to Kirk Franklin. He's a gospel singer. And he was bringing down the house last night. It was great. We were worshiping. I'm not going to sing for you. It was good. I like him. He's, he's from the neck of the woods I am uh, from in Texas. But I'll tell you this. Kirk's a good faker. He's a good fraud. He's a good deceiver. I don't know if you know this, but I, I, I used to go to his concerts back in the day. I mean, 13 years ago, I'm going to go sit watching Kirk Franklin sing and, and worship God. But you know what? When I was going back in the day to watch Kirk Franklin do all his gospel concerts, Kirk Franklin was in some serious sin. They'd come out on the stage, dance around, sing his songs, fake everybody out. Serious sin. Like, serious. And he came to a point in his life where he just couldn't stand anymore. And he was broken. And he repented. And he came back to the love of God and he totally, he totally busted himself in his sin for the world to see he repented. 
And he repented so much, he ended up going on Oprah. <laughs> and while he was on Oprah, he was busted on himself. Repenting of his sin. Talking about the grace of Jesus. Rescue him and save him. I don't know what you're into right now, but you don't have to go on Oprah. Alright? I know it may be a mess when you repent and there's a lot to clean up. We'll help you clean that up. But can you imagine God in His grace right now saying to you, I love you. Return to me. And I'll return to you. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot believe your grace. You chose us by your grace, not because you saw anything in us, nothing good or bad. You just, you love us by your grace. I just can't believe it. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are wayward right now, who are running, and I know they don't, they think they like that, but it's just, it's just sin that's keeping them away from you. And I just ask that they would return this morning to your love, and they wouldn't keep let pride keep them from returning. They wouldn't let the entanglements of sin and their so much love keep them from returning. But they just say, you know what? I'm going to return this morning to the grace and love of my Father. May all the prodigals in here come running home. May all the prodigals of those who have run away and just spent the, the inheritance on living in sin come home to the loving arms of the Father. Lord, bring them back to you. I mean, your love just really impress upon their hearts and minds that they will be accepted when they come running back. Yes, there will be consequences, but there's going to be a cleaning up of this mess by grace. Lord, let them know they can come back by grace, by your free, sovereign, loving grace. And may we worship not being fake or deceitful. May we worship because we've been forgiven. We're walking with you as forgiven people. Lord, do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.